and we only charge £40, so like $50. And we couldn't sell this product for $50. As soon as I repackaged it and put a £10,000 a year price tag on it, I managed to sell 340 of them. Um, so it was exactly the same product, exactly the same principle, but I learned a lot of business lessons in that first three months when I couldn't sell this to anybody, um, which was target the affluent, target budget holders, because it's not their money. Uh, a job seeker spending 40 or $50 is a big decision for them. A budget holder telling ten, selling, uh, spending £10,000 to educate their entire workforce is a very easy sell. The value is different. Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Mike Winnett, who sold his company, Learning Heroes, for around four times revenue. But before we get there, in today's interview, Mike mentioned the power of his YouTube channel for building his company on a shoestring. And so I did some digging and found an awesome video I'm really thinking you're going to enjoy on how to become a best-selling author. And I've linked to that video over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you about today's guest, Mike Winnett, who started Learning Heroes, which delivered e-learning courses to large corporations. The business struggled out of the gates, but after making one bold decision, the business flourished, resulting in Mike selling his company two and a half years after launching it for roughly four times revenue. Here to share with John the full story is Mike Winnett. Enjoy. Mike Winnett, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thanks for having me. How are you? Good? I'm good, man. I want to hear about learning heroes. How did you come up with the idea for this business? Well, I stupidly decided to set up a business in an industry that I had no experience in, um, no knowledge of. I just basically quit my job, 29 years old, with 12,000 pounds. I don't know, maybe like 15,000. To be fair, it's probably about $12,000 now, the way the pounds tanked recently. <laughs> it's changing every minute. Yeah, so about $12,000 in my pocket. I was 29 years old and I just came up with the idea for learning heroes in six weeks. So I knew nothing about the industry at all. All I did was I went online, I searched for what jobs were recruiting at the time. And I noticed that about 90% of all job ads would ask for effective time management skills, effective communication skills, uh, teamwork and ability. And in the UK, you don't get qualifications for those courses or skills. So I just thought, you know, I've got GCSEs and A-levels and I've been through college and stuff like that, but how can I prove that I've got these other skills? I went online and found e-learning courses offering um, to teach you these things. And it just didn't really compute with me. I thought if I want to learn something in real life, I would go on YouTube and I would find a video to teach me in three, four, five minutes. So it could be how to cook the perfect Sunday roast or how to whatever, build a wall. I'd always go on YouTube and I'd follow along and watch a video. So it made me wonder why on earth do we learn completely differently when it comes to employment? And that's when the penny dropped. I thought, why don't I just create content that's more akin to how you would learn at home and then apply that to the corporate world? And I came up with the idea. I wrote 10 million pounds on a piece of paper and a date 
And my plan was to then create this business and sell it for 10 million pounds, which was $11.1 million on the 1st of January, 2018. That was what I wrote down. And wow, I executed that. Yeah, so, and I executed that and I sold it for, um, well, I sold it for 8 million pounds, which was $11.1 million. So in fact, I don't know what it would have been in dollars, but it was 10 million pounds I wrote down and sold it for 8 million in uh, two and a half years. And that was through no passion of, in the, of the industry, no interest in it particularly. Literally just the, the industry suited a model that I thought I could create a successful business in. And it was my first ever startup that I did this with. Amazing. So let's get into the business model. So you identify that things like communication skills, negotiation skills are important skills across a variety of industries and jobs. What did you then do to create these courses or this e-learning? So I was quite clever, really. I looked at this industry particularly, and I looked at the problem with most businesses that I think people set up is they think that their USP is them or they're slightly cheaper than their competitors, where I really like to look at an industry where you can create a genuine um, alternative to what's out there. So the reason why Uber does so well is because the way that tax... They've got a completely different model to how traditionally you would book a taxi or you would hail a cab, whatever it might be. So I looked at e-learning and I looked at everything that was wrong with that industry. Number one, the content was too long. It was boring. It was basically created by geeks, not people that had been in business or had had to train or develop staff. It was long contracts. It was expensive for what it was. People would price per head, per course. Um... And I don't think it was fit for purpose. And then the people in the industry also tried to make out like online learning and e-learning was the be-all and end-all of training. When the reality is it isn't, it's such a small part of your learning journey. And I think actually, even though I sold the stuff, uh, quite an insignificant part, I would think it's better for pre-learning. So it's good for introducing concepts and languages. And then the real learning takes place either through experience, shadowing people, on the shop floor, wherever it might be, on the factory floor. So I basically thought, how can I create an actual alternative to what's out there? And that's what we did. So we went and we had a, a cancel any time rolling contract, which nobody else did at the time. It was new content every week rather than trying to sell big expensive catalogs that most people wouldn't use. Um, it was not priced per head. It was not priced per, uh, per course. So that's kind of what we did. And we created a genuine alternative to what was out there. Um, and then the way we marketed it was very different. So we would market it in a way where we actually took shots at our industry, where we would say e-learning's crap and we know because we make it for a living. And that really caught the attention because it's not often that people would um, talk like that about the industry that they are in. And um, that's kind of how we managed to a, get a lot of attention with no marketing budget. And B, because we genuinely had a real alternative, it meant that even if our clients used another provider for their content, we were a low-cost option that they could bolt on. So we didn't have to wait two years, three years, four years for the existing contract to run out. They could try us for a few months, see that our content was better, and then they would keep us in place while that other contract ended, and then they'd go exclusively with us. But we were so low cost um, that we signed up lots and lots and lots of clients very early on. 
but the smart move came where our content would use on any, could be used on anybody's learning management system, which is the platform that big companies use to uh, track what learners um, are registered, what courses they've done, pass and fail rates. So instead of trying to create an expensive system, like most of our competitors, we just created content that worked on everybody's system, which then meant my plan was to sell in three years. I could proactively, aggressively target some companies and I could go in peace and try and partner other companies to work together. And I knew that one of those two strategies would result in me getting a sale at the end of three years. So that's kind of what I did. But to go back to the question on courses, I think a lot of people, when they start their own business, we could have created a library of 300 courses and then tried to sell it and find out that no one would buy it. I launched that business with four courses. That was it. And it was a list of titles that I might or might not have built. And I could I started to sell that with four. So then the reason why we used to release new content every week, the real reason was we didn't have any content. We were making it as we went. So every Friday we would release a new course. We didn't have we didn't have the courses when we were selling them. How did you create the courses? Um, well, it's just go on there, do some research, and just quickly write the courses. It wasn't difficult. As we went <laughs> it was on, that simple. but you're not an expert on negotiating. Like, what were the four courses? I'm cl- I'm curious because like some people would look at this and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to do a course on X. Yeah, but, but this is the thing. These, this, or- these courses weren't um, these weren't accredited courses. These weren't two hours long, three hours long, because these were all the things that were wrong with learning. These were, we basically used to break a course down into three sections. And I'm talking, a course might be only five minutes long, six minutes long. It was essentially, what is a tried and uh, trusted, everybody should know this fact about you know time management. What's the sort of theory that everybody's known since the beginning of time that we know works? Then one was, what was a counterintuitive um, thing that had just come, come around? And then what was sort of topical or trending? It might be something new that you've never heard of before. And we used to build the courses on those three principles because we then knew there was something for every learner. Here you go. Here's something that's tried and tested. You must know this thing. And it could be how to upsell at the till in uh, retail. And it could be if someone buys a pair of trousers, you might say, hey, have you seen our belts? We've got a great offer on leather belts. So that's, you know, suggested another product might be uh, a tried and tested thing. Then there might be something that was counterintuitive. So it could be something in retail that might go against the grain, but, you know, try it, it might work. And that's all it was. So we literally launched with teamwork and ability, effective communication. Um, we had a leadership course in there. I can't remember what the other one was. It might be cybersecurity awareness. And it was just like, you know, don't plug a USB, an external USB in it at work. So really basic stuff. The funny thing is actually, I first tried to sell this product to um, job seekers and the idea was to help them gain skills so they'd be able to perform better at um, interview and they might get the job that they were looking for. And we only charged £40, so like $50. And we couldn't sell this product for $50. As soon as I repackaged it and put a £10,000 a year price tag on it, I managed to sell 340 of them. Um, so it was exactly the same product, exactly the same principle, but I learned a lot of business lessons in that first three months when I couldn't sell this to anybody, um, which was target the affluent, target budget holders, because it's not their money. Uh, a job seeker spending 40 or $50 is a big decision for them. A budget holder telling ten, selling, uh, spending 10,000 pounds 
to educate their entire workforce. It's a very easy sell. The value is different. Uh, so that was one of the biggest mistakes and lessons I learned in that first sort of three to four months. And one of the things that you did very differently than in your in your earlier comments that I'd love to explore deeper was not choosing to sell per seat. Yeah. And it's a stupid concept, I think. Yeah, that but it, it was, certainly would be differentiating versus everybody else who would sell per head. It's greedy. I, that's, you but I used to market it like that. I used to they say, I don't get it. How come you're so different? I think you've got it wrong. And I used to say, no, the industry's got it wrong. Why should I punish you? If you're a client of mine and you've got 500 staff and then your business does well and grows to 600 staff, why should I punish you for that growth? If anything, I'm just glad to be a part of it, right? You know, our trainings helped your business grow and you've made more money. And you've made, it's content. It doesn't cost me any extra money, my end, if you've got 10,000 staff or 100 staff, it's already made. It's pretty much 99% profit at this point. But I was very transparent with this. And that was the kind of content and commentary I was putting out there about the industry. That's why it wasn't well liked by a lot of our competitors. The ironic thing How? about it is most of those competitors that didn't like that now have adopted the pricing model that I had and we launched. Because we, we basically took all their clients off them. How did that pricing model, how was it viewed by your acquirer when you were negotiating the sale of the company? They loved it. They loved it. Uh, I mean, they increased the price by 40% the moment they walked through the door. So they lost like the bottom 15, 20% of their clients. But that business has been sold again for a billion dollars like two weeks ago. They basically went in, they cross-sold their existing, because they were a platform provider. So they had a big expensive $100,000 a year platform, learning platform. So to them, they could just bolt on our content to all their existing clients, make their money back that way. And then they could also sell their learning management system to our existing clients. The cross-sell opportunities were huge for them. So they wanted recurring revenue, subscription-based, um, high-profit um, pricing. So they lapped it up. That's what they were looking for. And that's what they were acquiring at the time they bought our business. So. It was good. You know, we only, we only lost one client in three years. Only one client canceled their contract in the entire three years that we had that business. One. So we had like that's a 99.3% retention rate. And that's not a lie um, to sound impressive. It was, be, it, was a, it was one of the easiest, biggest no-brainers. And what often used to happen, so we would sell to a learning development manager in a business. They would then move to another business and then they would bring us in straight away. So there was some... Um, learning to develop, development managers that had actually bought our products at three or four different jobs in, in the two and a half years that we had that business. Who's the we? Who are the, the partners in the company? Uh, so there was myself, uh, Ian Darlington, who is my business partner on stuff that we do now. We've got a, a production company called Iron Productions. So we do content marketing and a marketing and sales community called Views of My Own. So it was uh, myself and Ian. And then there was two brothers, Adam and Aaron Cara. It was the four of us and we split the company. Uh, did you guys just split it equally in four parts yeah. or did yeah got it and so were you all did you all have to kick in some cash in the startup years or did you just agree to not take money out or how did you yep. finance it you, you know you, you you eat what you kill right makes you more <laughs> you work harder so we didn't we didn't put any money in it was if this doesn't work i left i had 12 grand 
12,000 and my bills were 2,000 a month. So I knew I could work for six months at something and give it a real good push. So it was completely bootstrapped. We had no investors. We just literally head down and worked, worked, worked. So we didn't even start taking decent money until 18 months in, nearly two years in. So uh, yeah, it, it was it was all about the sale. We were so focused on the sale. That's where we knew the big payoff would happen. Um, a lot of people, when, when you think about sales, I'm thinking in particular of selling, selling the product now, a lot of people would raise money in order to finance buying advertising and, and so forth. How did you win new customers for your offering? Uh, content marketing. I was the only salesperson in that business until maybe five, six months before we sold. So the only thing I did was um, I would write content. People would see my content and get in touch because they were interested. I'd write content on LinkedIn. And then I always think for a lot of startups, most founders say, I just wish I could have another one of me in the business. The easiest way to do that is just create video content, answering the questions your ideal client asks. As soon as you start doing that, you're multiplying how many of you there is in the business. So if you ask, if I do 100 sales calls in a month and I get asked the same 15, 20 questions, what I did was I made videos answering those 15 or 20 questions. Then I just put those videos in the places that people ask questions, right? Google, YouTube, LinkedIn. As soon as I put that content there and people search and find those videos, they're self-qualifying leads, right? You don't need money to do this. You don't need to spend money on ad campaigns, Facebook campaigns. I think those type of um, campaigns aren't as effective at converting. So they're good for brand awareness or getting in front of lots of eyes and impressions, but impressions isn't a metric I place any value on. I think it's a nonsense metric. But what I would do is if, if I can create a video that might be three ways to increase your online learning retention or three ways to get more employees to, to want to get trained at work, whatever it might be, or question-based. So what question might an ideal client search for? As soon as you make content like that, anyone search that question self-qualifying and then you give them some value. They like you, trust you. They've heard your voice. They've seen your face. Then when it comes to purchasing, then nine times out of 10 going to come to you because you've already helped them yet you've never heard from them before. Now, if you make videos that overcome objections, they've already overcome numerous objections before you ever speak. So the way to, how to close that, those people when they finally do speech is so easy. So how did I get so many clients? Number one, I'm relentless. And number two, I knew I couldn't be in 20 different places at the same time. But if I made 20 different videos answering 20 different questions that all my ideal clients would ask, I essentially was in 20 places at the same time. So that's what I did. I also use LinkedIn really well. So I knew that any business that had a certain job title in it took learning and development very seriously. So then I also looked at the size of the business. So I know if anybody had more than 500 staff in their business, they could easily afford $500 a month. So if they had 500 staff plus um, a learning and development manager, I knew there was a good chance that I could sell to that company. And that's what I did. The very first thing I did though, was make a list of the top 200 most affluent uh, companies in the UK and targeted them. Now, why I always do this is so many people when they start a business try and start small. They try and get a few clients in and they don't think they can handle a big account. But for me, I don't know what their buying process is. I don't know how long their buying circle is, uh, cycle is. So I didn't know whether it might take me two years to get into 
Barclays Bank or Virgin or any of these big FTSE 100 companies. So you've got to start that process. Now, there's no point working two years till you think you're ready, then finding out it's another two years decision-making process for them, right? So I targeted the biggest companies that we were probably not ready for right from day one. And this is a little thing that I did. I quite like guerrilla marketing campaigns and unusual marketing campaigns. I talk a lot about this in um, VAMO, um, my sales and marketing community. I, I made a box for the top 50 most affluent companies in the UK. And in it um, was a screen that played an animation, an animation that looked and felt like our e-learning modules with a personalized message for the person that opened it. I sent 50 of those out and it cost 60 pounds per unit. Um, and of those 50 that went out, I signed up 26 of the companies that received them because none of them had ever seen anything like this before. But I tell you what, you can send an email because it's easy. You can DM on social media. It's easy. They're getting hundreds of them. Cold calls, they're getting hundreds of them. If you've got a box that arrived for you at work, you're going to open it. They open it and then it plays a personalized message to you saying, hey, we'd like to talk to you about this. And depending on what company it was, so if it was Virgin, it was an animation of Richard Branson with a voiceover that sounded like Richard Branson telling him to get in touch with us. People don't ignore that stuff. So 26 out of 50 people that got that box that I sent out in the first couple of weeks of that business, once I decided to target corporates, signed up with that business. Amazing. How big did you get this company before you decided to sell it? Uh, 24. There was 24 of us at the time when we sold. I tell you what, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't like roughly- it at that stage. I like uh, very small, less than 10, us against the world, celebrate every small win. At the end, it's boring. We were signing up 20, 30, 40,000 pounds worth of business every week, but it doesn't feel the same to me. I like the, when you get a 350 pound client or a 500 client, when you've not got any money, you're not paying yourself. I like that us against the world startup. Can we do this? We've got no budget. No one knows who we are. Can I get into this client? That's more interesting to me. So I didn't, I don't like it at the end. As soon as you start getting HR, and as soon as you start actually monitoring annual leave and people start talking about, can I have holidays that, and stuff like that, it's, I lose interest, to be honest. It's, it starts getting a bit too serious for me. So, yeah. So, you're 24 staff, roughly what turnover? Uh, well, we had 340 clients paying us on average £412 a month. That's what we were turning over. Our actual profit wasn't that, wasn't that high, really, about 400000 Got it. You're going to make me do the math on this, aren't you? <laughs> 340 times 412. Three times four is 12. So like 1.2 million pounds-ish? Yeah. Would that be right? What's that? Yeah, roughly. Yeah. Okay. Got Our it. profit was like 400K. Right. Okay. And, we, and did you have any sense of what the business might be worth? Uh, no. The, the goal was to sell it for 10 million, right? So it was just sell it some for 10 million. That was mm-hmm. it. I mean, I went Got to my, my our accountant said it was worth 1.2 million. What was your reaction to that? You're, I think you're wrong. I said it will sell for closer to 10 million. So six months before we sold, we said we want to sell this business in the next 12 months for 10 million. And they, they, they said, they laughed at me. They said that you're living in dreamland. This business isn't that. It's three times your profit, 1.2 million. Um, 
And I said, you, you're wrong. You don't understand how this works. You don't understand why someone would buy us, the reasons they'll buy us and why it's a lot more than that. And um, we agreed to disagree. And then I went and sold it for 8 million. So I want to get to that. And just I just did the calculation in my little calculator. So I was wrong. It's 100, roughly $140,000 a month of MRR, which if you annualize it, would be about just under 2 million pounds of ARR, annual recurring revenue. Yeah. Does that sound about right? Yeah. But our actual yeah. our turnover was high, really. It was, at this point, it was expensive. We are in an expensive office. We were taking a decent wage as well at the time. At the end, we were taking yep. a, a decent wage. It was, um, yeah, that's what I look for now. If ever I've, I have a business, it's can it be monthly recurring revenue? Can it be content-based, subscription-based? Does it tick those boxes? Because bespoke stuff's bullshit, if you want my opinion. You know, building individual things for individual people. Too much like hard work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So ballpark a couple of million in top line, 400,000 bottom line. Your accountant says, oh, it's worth three times. So it's 400 times three is 1.2. And you're like, mm, nope. Yeah. <laughs> what, what gave you the confidence that it was a $10 million business? When Even when your accountant, a professional in this area is, is saying, well, it's probably closer to- Yeah, because yeah, I don't think that they had ever um, dealt with a business like ours before, right? Um, I don't think they realized that um, it was the cross-sell opportunities there. So someone might buy my business that sells a learning management system. If their learning management system is worth $50,000 or $100,000, the opportunity to sell a $100,000 product to 340 fully engaged, fully onboard customers is huge. So potentially they're looking at what can we actually add to this business and then flip that if they've got, say, and this was the company that bought us, they had 3,600 clients that owns their learning management system. It's easy to bolt on a 10,000 product to their existing offering. So there was the cross-sell opportunity the other way as well. Um, so I knew the cross-sell opportunity would be huge. That would, that would um, add a few multiples. I also knew competitive tension. Now, when we launched in America and we launched in Australia, already there were learning management system provided saying, can we have exclusivity in this country? Now the answer is no. I wanted to partner everybody. If you want exclusivity, buy us. If you don't want your biggest competitor to be able to offer the same product, buy us. So I knew that would also create tension. And that is actually how we sold and that was the reason someone bought us. They didn't want their biggest competitor having our content in America. So they ended up buying us just to stop their competitor getting it. And these are things that accountants don't look at, right? Because to them, they're just looking at numbers on a spreadsheet. So that was one of my biggest things for anyone selling their businesses. You know, try and find an accountant that's aware of your niche or your sector or has done business in that sector before because it's so important. Because we would have took advice of somebody I, was, I thought was an expert. It's never actually been through that process in your niche before or dealing with a product quite like yours. So, um, And if we'd listened to our accountant, we might have accepted a lower offer. We were offered $7 million at first um, and we turned that down. And then they came back with $8 million and zero workout. So they said, we'd give you the money in 32 days in full and you don't have to come into the office again. But that's why we took the offer at that point, two and a half years after we launched. Incredible. I want to get into the actual specifics of that deal. So you're, you're roughly a couple million pound turnover annually on the top line and you're expanding to Australia and the United States. 
and 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 having conversations with learning management system providers. Yeah, well, and, we had twenty six partners at this point. We had twenty six learning management okay. providers that wanted to partner us for our content because our content was the best around. I thought at the time. And they are asking you for exclusivity. Yes, uh, some of them were. And yeah. your stock answer to that is, hey, you want exclusivity, you just buy the company. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> were you serious at that point that you would be open to selling the company or was that more of a joke? No. I I decided on the first day of my business what day I was going to sell it for and when. So it was a conscious decision to start having these conversations 12 months before that date that I was going to sell. So I backwards planned the business from that point. So I realized at this point, I need to be having these types of conversations with these types of people and identified who might be able to buy the business, why they would want to buy the business, how do I get on their radar early. Then I'd go further back into the timeline. So how many clients would I need at this point? What price would they need to be paying? Then even further back. So that means how many clients would I need to be selling to quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily? So I'd work this all the way back to the day I was sat there with a piece of paper that just said 10 million pounds, first of the first you of 2018. You mentioned you had 27 partners before you started this conversation. How did you contemplate or how did you structure your ability to cancel those partnerships in the event of an acquisition? Did you did you have that right in the event of a transition of ownership? Uh, no, like it was something we didn't discuss. It was just, do you want to partner us? They've got multiple, all these LMS providers have got multiple content partners, right? Now, their clients could come to us direct and cut them out of the loop. So say you're, um, I'll just pick a random one. So Kokum is a learning management system. So Kokum's clients could come to us and buy our content off the shelf then upload it into their system themselves or they'd go to their account manager at Kokum and say, just bought this new content. Can you upload it so our learners can use it? So our point was, don't partner us and we'll just sell to your customer base anyway. So most of them wanted to partner us because then they're thinking, oh, we can get 50% just by partnering you and proactively promoting you to our existing client base anyway. So A, we offered them more than any other partnership that was out there. Most partnerships would be 10% to 50% on the revenue. We offered 50% because all we were doing is land grab because we knew we were going to sell, right? So we offered more. So then we knew that when it comes to selling a learning management system plus content package, these providers and their sales team would be more inclined to push our content because it was more money in it for them. That was why. Um, but yeah, no, we had paperwork that says that at any point we could decide to cancel the partnership or whatever. Um, but yeah, we didn't invoke, we didn't uh, enforce that with anybody because at the time but you had the right to what is, I guess what I'm, what I'm getting. Yeah. At. Yeah. yeah. Because it doesn't, it didn't actually affect their clients. Their clients would have had our product anyway, and it's in their system. So that's all. And they didn't get um commission on, um, on the recurring revenue, a lot of them got, we, we also had an annual option, which most of them pushed because when they, you're buying a big learning management system for 20, 30, 40,000, it's easy to bolt a 5,000 or 10,000 product on it. So most of them were, they had their money up front anyway, they'd, they'd had their 50%. So. Yeah. So you have this conversation with a potential acquirer. Was, was this the actual acquirer of the business, Litmus? Was that the name, was that the name of the com- company that originally you said, look, if you want to have exclusivity, then just buy it. Yeah. Yeah. That was okay. And Litmus came to you and said, great. How, how's 7 million sound? Yeah. And your reaction was? Doesn't sound anything like 10 million. 
That was it. That was the, the be all and end all of the conversation. I actually said to them, if you had a house up for sale for one million pounds and I offered you 700,000, how would you feel about that offer? And then they said, well, probably wouldn't be happy. And I said, well, why do you think this is any different? And I think they thought I was joking or as if I was weird for not being excited or jumping through hoops or dead giddy, but no, the money's irrelevant at this point. You know, I think so. Because if they're offering seven million pounds, they know there's a deal in it for them, right? If someone jumps at you and offers you seven million quid, they know it's worth a lot more to them. So they're taking the piss really, aren't they? They've got to be. Imagine not knowing who you were till a couple of months ago. Then they go, do you know what? We'd give you seven million pounds for your business. What they're thinking is we could probably flip this business for 20 million, 25 million. Let's just try and give these idiots that don't know what they're doing a low ball offer and see if they take it because they're working class. They've not got a clue what they're sat on. They don't know the potential we could take this business. Um, and that's kind of the mindset I had. I said to the other lads, don't talk. When it comes to money, none of you speak. Uh, leave it leave it with me and I will handle the money side. And uh, yeah, so the 7 million offer came in and I said, no, thank you. Went home that night and told my wife and said, oh, we've got offered 7 million for the business today. Bear in mind, we're like two and a half years in. And she said, oh my God, we've made it. You're rich. Millionaires. I said, oh no, I said no. She was like, what? And then they came back Monday saying, right, 8 million, but these are the terms. We don't want to see you again. You're not allowed to work in this industry for two years. You can get your cash up front, piss off and be quiet. And I said, yes, thank you. I will sign. And that was that. What was the reaction among your partners to the revised offer? Yeah, let's take it. It was the not doing a workout was so important to us. Because what you need to remember, none of us had a passion for this industry. None of us wanted to be known as the e-learning boys or be the main face of... It was just a means to an end. It was just a way to acquire enough money and wealth to be able to do some of the things that we were interested in. Investing in properties, investing in businesses. Um, and also, we knew there was a shelf life on this industry. We knew that if we could do this with no money, no investors... A lot of these businesses that were willing to pay seven, eight, nine, ten million for us could easily bypass us in half the time if they threw that money at their own existing team. So it was it was a calculated risk, um, and it, uh, it was calculated to when we would sell that business. That's why we knew we probably had a three year shelf life on that business. You can be the best in the industry for two, three years, then you get bypassed by, you know. And this is how I looked at it: they they had eight million pounds there to spend. They could have probably spent two million in quarters in six months. So it was just the right time to sell, in my opinion. And this is on the basis that that company's been sold twice now since then. And the last sale was for $1 billion. Um, so we would never have got that, got that business to that size, ever. What was it about the goal of $10 million that was so important to you personally? Uh, well, it's, what, what did that represent to you? Nothing. Uh, like I think whenever you ask anybody what they want to sell the business for, they normally come back with one of four answers. It's normally one million, three million, five million, or ten million. I don't know why I did five, then I don't know why I did it before. Uh, so I don't know why it was just the top number. Ten million seemed like a nice round number. It was four of us, two and a half million each for two years' work, 
three years work. Seems all right. So that was it. I mean, I wish now I'd wrote 20 million on a piece of paper, <laughs> but I didn't. And the irony being, I'd say this, this mad little thing about it all. So the maddest thing about all that stuff is I wrote down exactly the number of sales that I needed to get for each year, year one, year two, year three. Uh, year one was 80. And I finished the year exactly on 80 sales. Year two was 200. And I ended the year exactly on 200 sales. Uh, and the year three was 400. And we were on 340 at this point. But it kind of blows my mind that I don't believe in the law of attraction and manifestation or any of these things. I think the law of action, actually having a clear plan and sticking to it, um, and then not being distracted by you know shiny object syndrome that a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs have. Sticking to the plan was key to us uh, hitting those numbers. Um, but when we were, say in the first year, we weren't paying ourselves about nine months in, I think we might be paying ourselves $500 a month, um, which is less than what my expenses were at the time. And Google came along because they'd seen some of our content and they wanted us to create them some bespoke content and offered us $90,000 to do it. And it was a three month project. And we said no. We said no to Google at $90,000, even though we weren't paying ourselves properly because it didn't fit the plan and it would have derailed us and put us back three months. So we made those types of decisions knowing full well that in three years time, we would get 10 million for the business. That was, we were that sure of the plan and we were that confident that we stuck to the plan even when money would probably distract a lot of other people in business. I know loads of people would have took that 90 grand contract. Whereas we didn't, it didn't fit, didn't fit the model. And we used to have a sign on the wall that said, does it make the boat go faster? And if the decision didn't make the boat go faster, we didn't do it. And it was that simple. It's an amazing story. And it's and weird. Do you know, I'll tell you this. I find business interesting because there's lots of people out there that will take money off you to tell you what you want to hear. There's a lot of people that would pay a lot of money to learn some secret hack or secret way of circumnavigating or avoiding hard work. But because most people, probably over 90% of people, want to avoid the hard work, and actually putting the effort in and doing what they know they need to do, it actually makes it very easy. So it's hard work, but it's very easy because most people don't want to do the hard work. And that's why if you just pick an industry where you can create a real alternative, you can genuinely be disruptive. You've got some genuine USPs, not, well, I'm me, or we're 5% cheaper than the competitive competition. If you can genuinely create an alternative that makes people think, oh, go on then, I want to know more about that thing. Or I think e-learning's crap or the way that you, you know, book travel's crap or the way, that you, um, the way that you book hotels is crap, whatever it might be, let me know about this other thing. It's, it's actually quite easy to start up a business, grow it, scale it. And essentially, if, you, if you've got the right model and you know I, who might buy you and you've got on their radar and stuff like that, it's quite easy to almost sell a business or get in front of anybody. But most people kind of want to circumnavigate all that stuff. They want to find, you know, how can I make six figures in 90 days? How can I generate a hundred new leads into my business within 30 days and stuff like that? Well, we didn't do any of that stuff. We just worked really hard, long days, many days a week, but not for very long. 
and we still managed to blast past most of the people. What was the kind of sandpaper in your relationship with your partners? Like what, I mean, it sounds like a great relationship overall, but what, on what did you disagree? Lots of things. Money, essentially. I I would never start a business now with four people, or four of us, four decision makers. Because essentially, there's always one that you feel like isn't putting the same effort in as everybody else. Or they might have different spending habits to everyone else. Or they might. So four is too many. I'd say three is too many. The most people I would start a business with now is one person. And that's what I've done in all my businesses since. And it's the same person, incidentally. Um, But yeah, so the relationship was uh stressed strained as they'd say and to be fair if we didn't sell that year i think it probably would have imploded or someone would have killed someone and that was not a joke by the way uh, legitimately the number of times where we'd have arguments and i was i was the worst one all that by the way i clashed with one of the directors the other two were quite diplomatic where i wasn't i think that me or the other director probably would have killed the other one of us so yeah so it was it came at just the right time to be honest that was part of the reason why we sold six months early as well as the terms being favorable to no workout cash up front you know what did you clash over uh lots of things because the way the company was set up so if you wanted to take 20 grand out of the business twenty thousand dollars we all had to take twenty thousand pounds out of the dollars uh, out of the business so it was never a twenty thousand dollar decision it was an eighty thousand dollar decision and when you're building a business to sell, taking eighty thousand pounds out, eighty thousand dollars out of a business might have a big impact on how much that business is worth, especially when those decisions you're making um, are due to your personal spending habits or stuff like that. So that was the biggest thing. You want to try and partner somebody with the same kind of living standards as you. As weird as that sounds, these are things that a lot of people don't look at when they're thinking of having a business partner. Same kind of values in terms of, you know, how you are outside of work and if you, are you a family person? Are you, are you flashy? You know, I still lived in the same three-bedroom, semi-detached house um, at the end of this business journey that I did at the beginning. I still drove the same car, which was a Ford Focus. I don't know if you have them over there. But I had a did Ford you? Focus on a 13 plate. So a 2013 Ford Focus, after I sold my business, I still drove that car for 13 months. Because I was, it never was about looking successful. I was all about being successful and I wasn't asked if anybody knew or not. I didn't have any social media, by the way. I didn't have any Facebook. I didn't have any Instagram. I didn't have any of this stuff. I just had a LinkedIn account and a YouTube channel. It wasn't even my face. That was the only two things I had. I, I had zero interest in trying to look successful at the expense of time, effort, and being actually successful i'd rather be rich and successful and no one knew who the fuck i was over i want to be online on social media renting lambos trying to look successful and living a lifestyle that my bank account can't we call it a champagne lifestyle on a lager wage and uh it didn't make any sense to me so yeah for a little lightning round of quick questions just need a one or two yeah yeah. answer each Ready to go? All right. So what is the slimiest trick a potential acquirer tried to play on you? Um, telling us that we, we shouldn't have got, you know, use our contracts. We've done this numerous times. You've got to trust us. If you want a quick sale, you need to, you know, don't bother the legal team. Um, and also 
uh, they tell you not to speak to anybody else while you're selling. And I've got this saying, one, one buyer is no buyer. But any purchaser trying to buy your business will try and tell you they want exclusivity. They don't want you to go to open market because they don't want you to find out what the true value is or create competitive tension. So that was one of the biggest mistakes we probably made, to be honest. What other big mistakes did you make in the selling process? Um, IP contracts. One thing I didn't realize was um, that even if you're, you use third party, you might have an app. If you use third party developers or whatever it might be, unless they've signed the right IP contract, when you come to sell that business, it can't be shown as an asset on your balance sheet. Even though we actually had contracts in place. So in the month we were selling the business, we were backdating contracts and getting people to sign contracts that said that they signed over. Anything they created for us belonged to us and that would be part of the sale. Now you'd think that would be quite easy, but imagine you've worked with a company for two and a half years and all of a sudden they want you to sign a contract. Then you start thinking, well, hang on, something must be happening. I don't want to sign this contract now because it must be something in their favor. So it caused quite a bit of tension towards the end because we had a very tight deadline at the end. We were trying to sell within 30 days. So I would say the IP contracts was a big one. The wrong accountants was also a big one. And then um, what was the first one I said? I forgot, I forgot the first one. Uh, well, it's okay. We don't need to go through competitive tension. That was it. So uh, they're the three okay. things. Got it. Got it. Got it. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process of selling your company? People talk about it being an emotional roller coaster in a very difficult time in their lives. For you, what was the. It was quick though for us. It was only a month. So the month from the day they inquired to the day the money was in the account was 32 days. So it was very stressful. But we uh, we thought we were going to sell earlier in the week. And we were told that the money was being transferred to us on the Wednesday. And it never happened. So imagine you've let a business come in. They've pulled your business apart. They've had their audits into your business. They've looked at every contract. How you marketed your business. How you won clients. And you're kind of trusting them because you've never done this before. You're kind of trusting them that they are going to give you eight million dollars at the eight million pounds at the end of this process, eleven point one million dollars. Then the money doesn't come. You start thinking, have we now shown a potential competitor exactly how we've built our business? We've given the keys to our ship, we've let them run riot for a month. Now they could go back to America and just replicate our model. Then it didn't arrive on the Thursday when they told us it was arrived on the Thursday. Now we were bought by a company that was listed on the last on the was listed on the Nasdaq, so I think they had to announce certain things to certain shareholders and stuff like that that a purchase could go through. So, um, and they had an annual like AGM meeting on the Thursday. So again, it didn't happen, but they never told us this. It was kind of like, oh no, it'll be fine. It'll be get completed today. It didn't get completed. It didn't get completed the day after. Now imagine if you're going to bed thinking tomorrow I'm going to become a millionaire. You don't sleep. So by the time Friday had rolled around, we'd had no sleep for 48 hours. And then obviously we sat in the solicitor's office and we waited and I just kept refreshing my phone. Then all of a sudden there was a few million pounds dropped in my account. That was it, done and dusted. I got up, I got in my car and I drove to my local supermarket. I bought some burgers and some chicken and I bought six bottles of champagne and I went and had a barbecue at home. That was it. We weren't allowed to tell anyone. We weren't allowed to tell anyone until Monday. So for the full weekend, we couldn't tell friends, family, because it wasn't announced to um, the stock market until the Monday. What was that weekend like? Mm, all right. I know it, it sounds mad. Like 
I was applying for jobs two weeks after I sold my business. Like all, none of this stuff is really of interest to me. I knew I was going to be a millionaire three years before. When I wrote down on that piece of paper and I wrote the plan and I'd execute it, after about nine months in that business, I realized I'm 100% getting the outcome that I want. Turns out I didn't get exactly what I wanted, but um, I got damn close. But I, there was absolutely no way it was going to fail at this point if I just stuck to the plan. So in a weird way, I used to say, um, we're already a millionaire to someone else has got my money at the moment. So it, it, I wasn't surprised at all. So when it happened, I was just like, all right, fine. What's the next thing? Let's go. So I was applying to work in real estate like two weeks after I sold the business. So I wanted to learn about real estate and investing. And, um, but I couldn't get, no one would employ me in the local town that I'm from in England. Because they just what thought What resources weird. did you turn to for educating yourself about the sale process? Like, were there courses, e-learning? <laughs> Was there anything that you uh, sort of nothing. looked into to, to learn the process? I didn't, nothing at all. I just went through it completely blind. Yeah. Experience is the best teacher, right? You know, so that's how I like to learn. That's why I was applying for jobs at real estate places. Do I want to go to a property course and pay $2,997 to learn about property in 14 hours? Or do I want to get paid every month to learn a far better education? And that's why I go and do the things that I want to learn about. I think it's a far superior way of learning. Did you buy yourself any sort of trophy to commemorate the win other than the six bottles of champagne and the, and the chicken and hot dogs? Was there any, uh, was there any trophy that you bought to celebrate? Uh, no, I just, I, I, my money was all gone in about eight weeks. I just invested it all in different things like stocks and shares, property. Um, I bought a villa in Spain, but all investments. My actual real life, weirdly, I set up a bank account that would just drip feed me $5,000 a month, 5,000 pounds. Uh, a month into my account every month on the 28th of every month. So I just got paid a salary. That money was gone in my mind as banks. Forget about it for 30 years and just carry on as normal. I was 32 at the time. So what are you going to do? Sit around on the beach or pat yourself on the back and say, look how amazing I was. No, I've got like another 30 years of this. So to me, it was just one thing I've done that I thought I was going to do. It's finished on to the next thing now. And speaking of the next thing, what is the next thing? Where can people find you? And, and you mentioned the online community. So like, where, what, what? Yeah, so I've got an URLs. online community. So I've got like businesses now. I've got like, a, we do YouTube for business. I've got a production company. I've got a podcast studio. I've got an animated explainer video company. Uh, and then I've got an online uh, sales and marketing community. So the best place to find me is YouTube. If you want to see some of the funny stuff that I invested in. And I like to make a mockery of, a lot of core sellers. Uh, that is uh, youtube.com forward slash Mike Winnett. And then if you want to see my actual um, views of my own sales and marketing community, that is useareMyOwn.social. And there every week I just answer someone's questions about, you know, how did I do my guerrilla marketing campaign? How do we do a billboard campaign? You know, how did I acquire business on LinkedIn? And I just give real life examples and case studies of actual things that have worked for me and stuff that I tried that didn't work, which I think is an important lesson that a lot of uh, entrepreneurs don't like to talk about. I'll be honest, right? So um, I think anyone can fluke this. I think anyone can fluke a business. Um, I don't really necessarily think uh, a lot of 
uh, entrepreneurs give enough credit to luck because that that uh, damages their ego, right? Because they like to think that they were dead smart and dead clever and they thought that's an amazing idea. But I think if I started that business today, I wouldn't get the same results in two and a half years' time. You, you, obviously, it was a good idea. It was the right sec, uh, right industry. We did a lot of the right things um, to make it happen. However, we were lucky that there was a company looking to acquire our businesses, a business like ours at that time. And that's why I don't think I could be on stage and say, if you follow my 67-step guide to business, you could sell your business for $10 million in three years because there's too many variables outside your control. So, um, yeah, you know, I got lucky. Good idea. And an important part of any success is luck. Might be a small part, but it's one of the most essential things for you to get what you want. And good execution and hard work. And it sounds like you had those. Yeah, so they're in, you know, good idea, execute the plan, all these things talent but luck is a very significant part that most people don't like to credit because it takes away from their brilliance i've got absolutely yeah. no problem with saying it and so i don't think it was my big one i think i've got another big one in me um, and that's what i'm working towards at the moment well we'll be following this story on youtube i'll put all the show notes and those links to your youtube channel and um these are my own in uh, the show notes at builtthecell.com. Mike, thanks for doing this. No worries. Thanks for having me. And there you have it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed John's conversation today with Mike. For show notes, including links to everything referenced, including the YouTube video I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, you can go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, then be sure you're subscribed to the podcast. If you love today's episode, then share this podcast out with a friend or colleague who you feel like would be truly impacted by today's conversation. If you know of someone who would be a great guest right here on Built to Sell Radio, you can actually nominate them. Some of our best guests, like Mike, have been nominated by others. So you can go ahead and visit builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you can nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the podcast with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering and thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To find an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, visit valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.